0: Trust is an absolutely vital thing for our lives, as uh, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 remind us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It's interesting, is it not, that trusting is equated to leaning <laughs> in that psalm, lean not on your own understanding, that's what we will be thinking about this evening when we turn to Isaiah 30. If you have your Bibles, please turn back there. Uh, The text is on the screen behind me, Isaiah 30 uh, verse 8. It's an unchanging word there, the Lord longs, it says in the NIV, in the ESV, it says waits. It also says at the end of the verse, blessed are all who wait or long for him. It's the same word interchangeable, it can mean longing or it can be waiting. And uh, it's a fascinating verse in the midst of a very dark and in chapter full of indictments. Let's pray and let's ask for God to speak to us. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that as we look into this prophecy again this evening that your servant Isaiah wrote, he wrote because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Grant that we might see Jesus' glory and see and savour and adore him this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Authentic relationships must be built on trust. That's why relationships break down when trust is gone. I once uh, was meeting up with a chap who had really strong suspicions that his wife was being unfaithful to him. And that was shattering for him, absolutely shattering. And his suspicion increased the more furtive she became. And the more difficult to... Can I, can I, who's text you? Nobody! And, and he wouldn't, she wouldn't let him look at, look at her phone. And so that, he just went through six months of agony... Because the the, 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 the the heart of their relationship was stro- stretched a breaking point. The message of the Bible is that there is only one who is trustworthy. Only the Lord can be trusted, only the Lord is trustworthy, worthy of our trust. The Bible also says about us that we have an inbuilt, willful obstinacy to trust the Lord, the God of the Bible. Those two things are true. Only God can be trusted, and we have a huge problem trusting him. That's what chapter thirty fifteen says. <clears throat> this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. A terrible indictment, isn't it? God knows our hearts better than we do. Do you know how reluctant and resistant your own heart is to fully and wholeheartedly trust the Lord for everything? Not just for your final salvation. Many of us can say, I know Jesus died for me on the cross... I know that he bore my sins. I know that he's been raised from the dead. I know I have a place in heaven when that time comes. I know that. I trust the Lord. So, why do you melt down on Monday mornings when the wheels come off your bus? You only have, if you can only trust the Lord for your final salvation and yet can't, you must think in some ways, we have got to paddle my own canoe, you're not trusting the Lord. Not just for your final salvation, as I say, but for also for everyday life in the real world. Let me ask you a couple of questions. <clears throat> when your happiness and security is threatened, how do you react? I was talking to a guy recently who's, <coughs> praise God, <coughs> excuse me, who's recently come to know and love the Lord. And, and uh, one of the things he was telling me that there is a change. There, he has noticed a change in his emotional stability as a result of trusting in the Lord. He said, when my kids used to get on my wick, I'd go into, melt, I'd go into DEFCON 5. That's sort of in defense industry. <laughs> DEFCON 5 is a nuclear option, basically. And he said, now I, I, I don't go there. I, I'm more calm. I, 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 can, I don't react. I think about it. I pray it through and then respond. That's grace. How do you react in a crisis? Is prayer the first response of your heart or the the last resort when all other lights go out? Have you ever asked the Lord, why is this happening to me? Or have you ever asked the Lord, how long, Lord, how long before you step in and save and heal and deliver me? The shocking answer that might be applicable uh, to some of us that this passage gives and the Lord gives through this passage is whenever you're ready whenever you're ready let me read you to my text again in verse 18 yet the Lord longs the Lord waits to be gracious to you therefore he will rise up to show you compassion for the Lord is a God of justice blessed are all who wait or long for him Let me set the context for you. We're now in the year 705, 701 BC. That's when this is written. Hezekiah is the king. He's fairly early on in his reign. The Assyrian superpower is on the march and little Judah is in their crosshairs. Egypt is offering so-called protection at a price. You can see that in verses 6 through 7. They have to take a lot of money to buy protection from Egypt. That's the function of the envoys that are going. And they're going there to secure a deal with Egypt rather than trusting the Lord. And now Isaiah knew that this was a fatal choice. They were choosing the way of death. But as he was commissioned, he continued to preach the gospel of grace and the gospel of God's glory that is to be found exclusively in Christ alone. Trust is a vital thing. For us, last year I think it was last year, or I, I can't remember the dates precisely. But that uh, footballer Emiliano Sala—I think that's how he pronounce his name—he was signed by Cardiff Football Club, and I'm sure he was made. He made a decision which proved to be fatal, did he not? He boarded a plane that was flown, a private plane that was flown by this pilot called David Ibbotson and they discovered later on after the investigation that the pilot was not certified to fly at night because he was colorblind. You see, trust makes us make decisions. We have to trust when we make decisions all of the time. Let me give you the shape of the passage. In 1 through 17, the Lord is basically saying, in summary, you will learn to your cost that Egypt's help is useless. In verses 18 through 26, he's saying you will, you will when you are ready, experience how trustworthy the Lord alone is. And then 27 through 33, you will discover to your amazement that Assyria's threats are powerless. That's the basic structure of the passage. So let's walk through this. Here's my summary for us us to take away. Number one, avoid the fatal sins of trusting in Egypt and turning away from the Lord. Egypt, in this passage, represents the world and where we go to for our security and our refuge and shade. So avoid the fatal sins of trusting in Egypt and turning away from the Lord. Rather, experience the blessings of waiting or longing for the Lord and so joyfully anticipate Jesus' endless victory on his people's behalf. So let's walk through the text. Avoid the fatal mistake of trusting in Egypt and turning away from the Lord. Woe to the obstinate children. Woe to the obstinate children declares the Lord to those who carry out plans, 30 verse one, that are not mine, forming alliance, but not by my spirit heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. There's a very serious indictment and definition of idolatry in those verses. <clears throat> do you know the definition of idolatry? This is the, from this passage. You can I, I take this from this passage. Idolatry is turning to, looking for, investing in, that's what they're doing in verse 6, investing in what you know you need. What do we need? We need the same things these people need. Protection, shade, refuge. The other things that actually God promises specifically to his people that he is our protection he is our shade and he is our refuge we know we need them and he promises to, that he is that to us idolatry is turning to the world to provide protection shade and refuge to anyone or anything other than the lord that's the definition of idolatry that comes straight off the pay, off the page of this chapter But look how ridiculous it is. If you scan down to verses six through seven, there's a prophecy concerning the animals of the Negev. It's a bit weird. It's a bit it's a bit Isaiah-ish. It's a bit quirky. Okay, but what he's doing is mocking. This is what he's he's Isaiah by the Spirit is mocking the envoys who are going down loaded with all of the money, to buy the protection, shade and refuge that they think Egypt can provide and the Lord can't. It's utterly ridiculous. Through a land of hardship and distress, and of lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes, they're avoiding Assyria to get to Egypt so they can get protection from Assyria. It's ridiculous. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no river deep enough. No expenses spared. The envoys carry their riches on donkeys' backs, their treasures on the humps of camels, to the unprofitable nation. And God calls it's, it's, it's like the Lord is saying through Isaiah You are just you are going back to the nation that held you in slavery for 400 years for the protection, shade and refuge that I promise you, and you're taking your money with you to buy it. No wonder it's mocked, it's utterly useless, verse 7, and mocked by God, who's helped us, verse 7, utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab. That's a slang name for Egypt. The do-nothing That's what they're doing and they're deliberately it's it's sin upon sin not just turning to egypt but also turning away from the lord godless planning verse one spiritless alliances and prayerless requests prayerless um help quests and look what they're going to get for all of their trouble only shame and disgrace. That's repeated in verse three and verse five. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you will be your disgrace. Again it's in verse five. Everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them, who bring neither help nor advantage, but only shame and disgrace. And that's only the down payment. It gets worse as we'll see later on in the chapter, verses 12, 14, and 16 through 17. That's the definition of idolatry, turning away from the Lord to anyone or anything else that only the Lord can provide. But they are a rebellious people. Look at verse 8. This is now going to be written down as a record against them. Go now, write it on a tablet and inscribe it on a scroll, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. Why? For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. So what Isaiah does now, he not only gives us a definition of idolatry, and holds it up like a mirror so we can see it, and recognize it in our own hearts, but he also gives us the rebellious causes of our idolatry. A stubborn, unwillingness to listen to the Lord's instruction. That's what it says in verse 9. Children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. It's the word Torah, it means the law, and it's a sharp contrast with the guy in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. None of that, none of that here. There's no appetite for God's word, rather the preaching that they're hearing, they're telling the preachers to shut up, verse 10, they say to their seers, see no more visions, and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right, tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions, leave this way, get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. We just want to sing a lot and have a few sweet thoughts, that's all we want. We just want Christianity light, Okay? And many churches in the UK are going down that path. Christianity light. Let's 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 new to the preaching. Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Tell us a few sweet thoughts, and we'll sing loads and we'll go home feeling really good about us. The 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 internet is full of this garbage. Joel Osteen can fill a stadium, 20,000 people in it, and tell them they're all wonderful and God loves them. It's a frightening thing, isn't it, when we lose the appetite for God's word and the truth of God's word. Having an appetite for a few sweet thoughts rather than the Lord himself. Paul writes about this in 2 Timothy 4, 1-4, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Why? For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires... They will gather round them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Let me just hit the nail on the head a little bit here, if I may. This tells us what the goal of preaching is, by the way. What do you think the goal of preaching is? If you were asked to answer a theological education question, what is the supreme goal of preaching? What would your answer be? The text tells us the supreme goal of preaching is that we might encounter the Holy One of Israel. That we might encounter God. It isn't just a bloke saying a few words. The goal of preaching is that we might experience and encounter God as he is and as he has revealed himself in his word. And as we do encounter God, it's not just nice sermon, pastor. God. God spoke to me god met with me god did something in me i now know god better that's the goal of preaching that we might be full of praise and adoration for him which leads us as verse 15 tells us to repentance and rest and quietness and trust which is where our salvation and our strength is so he's given us a definition of idolatry and he's given us the causes of our idolatry And he also shows us the fatal consequences of our idolatry, verses 12 and 14. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says, because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression and and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly. In other words, the firewall that you have invested in to protect you will be the source of your own destruction. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces, none a fragment will be found for taking coals from the heart or scooping water out of the system. Verse 16, after they said, no, we'll have none of it. You will have none of it. You'll have none of the gospel. You said, no, we'll flee on horses. You will flee on horses, said the Lord. You will flee. He will give you over to what your your desires are, to your own destruction. Therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you will flee or flee away, till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountain, like a banner on a hill. The getaway car, i.e. the Egyptian horses, that you've purchased by your own money, will be overtaken by people with faster horses until only a place marker remains. Uh, We heard at the pastor's conference this uh, past week that the Lord is shutting down churches. The Lord is shutting down folklore churches where there's no gospel. there's shutting down, and that's good news. And he's raising up churches that love the Lord and preach the gospel all over this nation. May he do it more and more and more. Idolatry is a terrible thing. It is the default setting of every human heart. John Calvin said that our hearts are like idle factories that are on production 24-7, 365 days of the year. There's always something other for us to trust in rather than Lord. And what this passage also shows us is that times of crisis or threat to the equilibrium of your life, exposed where your heart is really looking for your salvation and strength and security. It's either the Lord or your own understanding, (laughs) a.k.a. Egypt. You're either trusting, leaning on the Lord with all of your heart, or you're trusting your own understanding about how to get yourself out of the mess. No wonder the Old Testament and the New Testament reveal how self-deceived our hearts are and how often we limp between two opinions. That was the issue on Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He said to the people of God, how, how long will you limp between, halt between two opinions, Baal or, or the Lord? No wonder James in the New Testament says that we are often double-minded and unstable in all our ways. No wonder the Apostle John lovingly warns us, dear children, keep yourselves from idols, 1 John 5, 21. Here's a question for you to think about. Why wasn't Isaiah spooked by Assyria or seduced by Egypt? Why was he, as it seems, one of the very few in the midst of this political crisis, was able to fully, wholeheartedly trust the Lord. Do you know why? Would you like me to tell you why? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw the Lord. He savoured the Lord. And he shared the Lord with the people of his day and generation. Which is where the text uh, comes into play. We are called not to commit the double sins of turning away from the Lord and turning to Egypt, but to rather experience the blessings of waiting or longing for him. Verse 18, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who trust in him. How do we, how can we, how must we experience the blessings of longing, of waiting for him? The text tells us, doesn't it? The Lord longs to be what? The Lord, what, the Lord longs to be what? What? Gracious to you. He's a God of grace. Therefore, He will rise up to show you compassion. Where does this gracious compassion come from? Well, it's from the Lord. The way we experience the blessing of waiting and longing for Him is by beholding His glory. Gracious and compassionate are words that resonate. This is what Moses experienced in in Exodus 34. At the end of the sins of the people of Israel, the golden calf incident, and Moses prayed God's forgiveness on the people of God, he said, "'Now show me now thy glory.'" And this is what happened in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. "'Then the Lord came down in the cloud "'and stood there with him and proclaimed his name.'" The Lord, And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands <clears throat> and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We will experience the blessings of being able to fully trust in the Lord and to wait upon him and long for him by beholding his glory as he has revealed himself to us in his word. This is far more, this is far deeper than just Bible reading. I've done my Bible reading today stuff. This is beholding his glory. And the the Bible says that something happens to us as we behold his glory. We are changed. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You pray that when you sit down with your Bible in the morning. Lord, show me now thy glory. Help me to gaze upon the glory and the majesty and the compassionate God that you are. Take my eyes off me and my stuff. Help me to gaze on you. The second way... It's not only by beholding his glory will we experience the blessings of waiting for him, longing for him. But by rejoicing in his justice. Notice what he says in verse 18. For the Lord is a God of justice. What was it that Abraham prayed as as he was pleading? with the Lord to spare the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Our God rules over the nations and the judge of all the earth always does what is right. We are going to look at the nations as Habakkuk expressed and be amazed. But we do know that over all of the tin pot. Come here today, gone tomorrow, politicians. The sovereign Lord is in heaven. Our God is in heaven and he does what he pleases. His justice like mountains are high, soaring above. So, but he's not only sovereign over all of the nations, the the Lord is a God of justice, doing right in every and any situation across this planet but he is also intimately involved and doing the right things in your life and mine. He always does what is right. That's why Romans 8:28 28 is in the Bible. And we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, because he's a God of infinite justice. But supremely, the God of justice is seen in his justice satisfying death for us on the cross. The righteousness of God is revealed supremely in the crucifixion of his son. He, he, go, he forego the punishment of the sinners in the past because they he knew that he was going to lay that on Jesus. <clears throat> And justice was fully and forever satisfied when Jesus died on the cross because he's gracious and compassionate and just. He would rather his son bear your sin than you bear it because he's a God of infinite justice you want to see God's justice demonstrated supremely? Go to the cross. Look at the cross. And what are the promised blessings? we, we, We are promised to experience the blessing of trusting him and waiting upon him by gazing and beholding his glory and rejoicing in his justice. What are the promised blessings? I can only highlight them for you. Answered prayer, verse 19. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem... You will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Walking in step with the Spirit, verses 20 and 22, 21. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, he does put us through times and seasons of trials and testing. Nevertheless, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying... This is the way, walk in it. This is talking about what it means as Christians to walk in step with the Spirit. He brings His Word to light through as we read His Word. His Spirit ministers to us, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And He gives us the power to hate and kill the idols of our heart verse 22 then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold you will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them away with you you will one of the works of the spirit of god is you hate sin not just their sin but yours yours you hate it he breaks the power of canceled sin One of the gifts of the Spirit of God in you is not just to see Jesus and to love Him and adore Him, but to see your sin and hate it and kill it in the power of the Spirit. And faith to believe in all of the Lord's good promises. Well, think about that in the time of prayer. He's given us exceedingly great and precious promises. And one of the works of the Spirit is to convince us that they're true. He will send you rain and seed. This is Old Testament blessing on the land speak. But it is, it is a way of communicating to the people of God in those days that all of the Lord's good promises are fully and wholly trustworthy. And then the chapter draws to a close. And if we can joyfully anticipate Jesus' endless victory on his people's behalf. And this is quite hard language, but it is, as I say, our Isaiah prophecy language. She, the name of the Lord, comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath, and his tongue is a consuming fire. His breath is like a rushing torrent rising up to the neck. He shakes the nations in the sieve of destruction... He places the jaws of the peoples in a bit that leads them astray, and what are the people of God doing when God comes on the day of His wrath? We're singing. We are singing. And the Lord will cause verse twenty-nine. This is what, what this prophecy is here. Is regarding in their particular day the destruction of Assyria. This is replaying the Exodus and it's foreshadowing the day of the Lord's return when he will come in wrath and God's people will sing. Lovely uh, promise. Look at verse 33. Topheth has long been prepared. It has been made ready for the king. Its fire pit has been made deep and wide with an abundance of fire. And would the breath of the Lord, like a stream of burning sulfur, sets it ablaze. This is a prophecy concerning the destruction, the imminent destruction of Assyria. This is, um, as I say, it's rooted in their days in the historical context of the promised destruction of Isaiah, which to them at this point in their history was the paralyzing fear of the Lord's people. They were terrified of Assyria. That's so why they were running with the tail between their legs, and their money lo- and you know they cleared their bank accounts out to run off to Egypt. No help. And he says, "I'm if yeah, you'll see, I promise you, I'm going to destroy your enemy. You will. You, you will. It, it's, I'm going to protect you. you. It will not happen." This is Alec Matthias' uh, commentary on this. He points out that little did Assyria know that their imperial progress to consume Zion was in reality their own funeral procession. As they marched out with their chests stuck out, you know, they could strut sitting down this bunch, as they marched out and to consume Judah in their great pomp and this great big procession that they were coming down over the hill towards Judah they were actually leading their own funeral procession with the fires of their cremation that had been ignited by the Lord. And of course, this anticipates the ultimate endless victory that Jesus has won for his people through his death and resurrection. What are the people of God doing in the book of Revelation when he comes to judge the nation's? They're singing, hallelujah. They're singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Thine be the glory, risen, conquering Son. Endless is the victory, thou or death has won. Egypt is no help. Can you flick that on for us? Thank you. My internet's gone down. Thank you. Egypt is no help. Don't turn to them. Assyria is no threat. Don't fear them. Long for the Lord who waits to be gracious to you. Let us pray. Father, we praise and bless and adore you. You alone, Lord, are worthy of all of our praise. You alone, Lord, are worthy of all of our trust. Father, you know what tomorrow's going to bring. You know the seasons that many of us are going through where our faith is under fire. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you said, but I have prayed for you. Help us, Lord, to win the battle of trusting in you for all things. You're a God who is incredibly gracious. You long to be gracious to us because you're a God of infinite compassion and beautiful justice. Grant that we might know the blessings of waiting and longing for you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the arrangements for the time of prayer it's open to anyone who'd like to stay you can stay for a minute and pray or you can stay for as long as we feel it's right and then we'll i I won't go and be be on nine o'clock if you can stay for a minute grab a cup of tea come back pray that's great lots of people need our prayers and it's a praying is an act of worship because we're telling god we can't do anything without him and we desperately need him to work so if you can stay please do if you have to leave after we've sung this song. May the Lord bless you. Please stand with the music and sing.